Hello and welcome to the Next Stage podcast by WebSummit, taking you inside the minds of business leaders and cultural icons from around the world. As we speak, efforts are underway to create the first human settlements beyond planet Earth. The motivations to do so are many. Some see economic opportunity. Others consider this a quest for discovery and scientific exploration. While others consider settling space to be a necessary hedge against the uncertainties that face us in the future here on Earth. Regardless of whether they're driven by one of these motivations or all of them, the focus so far has been on the technologies need us, needed to get us there. How can we design rockets to land people safely on the surface of Mars? How can we build structures that will keep people safe on the surface of Mars or even beneath its surface? And how can we design agricultural systems that will sustain a human colony? Clearly, there are substantial technological challenges. But what if we're successful? What will happen to the first generation of humans born on Mars? How will the conditions on Mars affect their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren? We actually know quite a bit about how space affects the human body by studying astronauts on board the International Space Station. In 2015 and 2016, American astronaut Scott Kelly and Russian cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko spent nearly a year on the International Space Station, providing us with our best opportunity to date to study in detail how prolonged spaceflight affects the human body. Now, the most obvious difference between being on Earth and being in space has to do with gravity. In zero G, the body fluids start to become distributed in different ways throughout the body. The head starts to feel swollen, and changes in eye pressure can affect vision. Also in weightlessness, muscles that aren't being used as much, like in the legs and along the spine, begin to atrophy and weaken. For the same reason, bones also weaken and become brittle. Well, we also know that radiation in space affects the human body. Out in space, there are galactic cosmic rays, solar particles, and ultraviolet radiation. Now, we don't typically have to worry about much of that radiation here on the surface of the Earth because we're largely protected by our thick atmosphere and the Earth's protective magnetic field or magnetosphere. And actually, the International Space Station is close enough to Earth that it still falls under the protection of the magnetosphere. Nevertheless, people on the International Space Station are still subjected to about 24 times the amount of radiation as we are here on the surface of the Earth. And by studying Scott Kelly's DNA before and after his year in space, and also by comparing his DNA to his identical twin, Mark Kelly's DNA, we now know that that space radiation causes genetic and epigenetic changes. The conditions on Mars are somewhat different from the conditions on the International Space Station. For one thing, there's more gravity. 
Mars has about one-third the gravity of Earth. But there's also a lot more radiation than there is on the International Space Station. Mars has only a very thin atmosphere, and it has no magnetosphere at all. So radiation from space hits its surface at nearly full strength. Nevertheless, we still consider Mars to be our best bet for a first colony beyond Earth because it has many of the resources that we'll need, including abundant water. Now, as an evolutionary biologist, I see colonizing space as a familiar first step in a process that has played out thousands of times here on Earth. Evolutionary biologists since Darwin have considered the Galapagos Islands a natural laboratory for studying evolution. Darwin observed that the many species of finches that are alive there today have slightly different beaks that make them well adapted to particular diets. Researchers today are continuing to study Galapagos finches and other Galapagos species in order to better understand the specifics of how evolution works. We now know that the 14 species of Galapagos finches alive today can trace their ancestry back to a single species that arrived in the Galapagos Islands between one and two million years ago. It became isolated on a particular island that kept it apart from species that were on other islands. And that's the key factor why Galapagos is such an ideal place for evolution. Isolation means that a population of birds on one island are independent from a population on another island. Any changes that happen to birds on one of these islands won't affect the birds on the other islands. Now, these birds are experiencing mutation as a natural process. Anytime cells divide, there's a chance that an error will be made in copying DNA, and that can lead to a mutation. Whichever mutations are beneficial under the current circumstances will be able to be passed to future generations. And so natural selection over time leads those populations to be well adapted to the current conditions on those islands. But this process isn't unique to Galapagos finches, and it isn't even unique to the Galapagos Islands. Around the world, we see islands as hotspots for evolution. And again, the key factor is isolation. A species arrives on an island, and isolation allows it to accumulate differences through mutation and natural selection, eventually causing it to become different from other members of its species. The planets in our solar system are islands on a much larger scale. Humans living on Mars would be subject to the same forces of mutation and natural selection as finches in the Galapagos Islands or species on islands anywhere on Earth. That means we can use what we know about evolution to make predictions about how humans on Mars will change. Of course, science fiction writers have been doing this for decades. So how does the science fiction compare to the science? Let's go back to what we know about humans living on the International Space Station. We know that gravity affects the body in many ways. Now, science fiction writers have used this to imagine that humans on Mars with its weaker gravity might become long and lean with thin, brittle bones. But they might be forgetting one key aspect of human life. 
Imagine a little girl who's born on Mars and grows up there. Throughout her lifetime, the low gravity means that her bones will be gradually weakening. By the time she reaches adulthood and is ready to have children of her own, her bones might not be able to withstand the forces that will be imposed on it during childbirth. A fractured pelvis could be deadly for both the mother and the baby. On the other hand, women who are born with slightly denser bones would be able to afford to lose some of that bone density as they age, so that by the time they reach adulthood, they're more likely to survive childbirth. And that means they'll pass on their genes for denser bones to their children. Over generations, we could get Martians with dense, robust skeletons. Now, another factor, of course, is going to be radiation. Now, of course, we'll try to build our structures so that there's some radiation protection built in, and we might even build them underground. But still, humans on Mars will be exposed to much more radiation than we are here on Earth. And that's especially true if people are going to spend any amount of time on the surface. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to Mars if I don't ever get to go outside. So what is going to happen with that radiation? Radiation damages DNA. We saw that from Scott Kelly's time in space. And that damage can lead to mutations. Mutations can lead to cancer. So unless we cure cancer before we go to Mars, life expectancies for people on Mars might be much lower than for people here on Earth. But some of those mutations could actually be beneficial, tweaking the body in ways that might actually make it more likely that those individuals would survive. Let me give you an example of a potentially beneficial mutation. We know that here on Earth, the skin pigment eumelanin provides some natural protection from ultraviolet radiation. At the same time, there are other species here on Earth that use different types of pigments, like carotenoids, which are the pigments that give carrots their orange color. We get carotenoids from our diet, as do most other animals. But a particular type of insect, a species of aphid, actually acquired the genes to make carotenoids on their own. And in the process, they became orange. So perhaps rather than little green men, we might actually have orange-skinned Martians. Now, let's think about how long it's going to take for these types of processes to occur. We tend to think of evolution as being slow and gradual, the way that Darwin thought of evolution. But we now know that evolution actually can take place quickly. Researchers have observed measurable changes in the beaks of Galapagos finches from one year to the next. And in laboratory experiments, we've noted dramatic changes in the metabolisms of E. coli bacteria in as little as 15 years. So how is it that these species can evolve so quickly? Well, there are three factors that control how quickly evolution occurs. The first is what we call the strength of natural selection. Essentially, this is just how much of an advantage does a particular trait provide? Because the conditions on Mars are so different from the conditions on Earth, any change that provides an advantage is likely to be a major advantage. And that means the strength of natural selection will be high. Now, the second factor is how much variation is available for natural selection to work with. Ultimately, that depends on mutations. 
And as I already mentioned, we expect a mutation rate on Mars to be much higher than it is on Earth because of the radiation exposure. So you put those two things together, right? You've got strong natural selection, and you've got a high rate of mutation. That suggests much more rapid evolution on Mars than what we're used to here on Earth. But there is a third factor, and that's generation time. Because by definition, evolution is changed from one generation to the next. So part of the reason that E. coli bacteria and Galapagos finches can evolve so quickly is because they can reproduce so quickly. Galapagos finches have a new generation about every year. E. coli bacteria have had a new generation since I started talking. So, of course, human generation time is much slower, about 25 years on average. So you might be thinking that these types of changes could still take centuries, if not millennia. And for that reason, Martians may choose to take matters into their own hands, guiding their own evolution through the use of CRISPR gene editing technologies. We already have that technology. What we're missing are two key factors. First of all, we need to know what genes to edit and what actual changes to make. To figure that out, we may be able to learn from what we call extremophile organisms. These are organisms here on Earth that live in extreme environments like the deep sea, like pools of acid, the dry valleys of Antarctica. Somehow, organisms are able to live in these places, and if we can figure out what it is in their genomes that allows them to survive in those environments, perhaps we can make similar changes to our bodies in order to help adapt us to conditions on Mars. But the second factor that we need to understand is more about our own genomes, so that we can be confident that any change we make to one part of our genome doesn't have unintended consequences for other parts of the genome. But there is another possible approach. Rather than just manipulating our own genomes, we may be able to manipulate the genes of our microbiome, the bacteria and other microorganisms that live in and on our bodies, and that we're learning form important, play important roles in keeping us alive and keeping us healthy. So we might be able to tweak their genomes and effectively outsource some of the adaptation that we will need to have in order to survive and thrive on Mars. After all, we know we're going to take this microbial entourage with us to Mars. We know that Scott Kelly's microbiome from a year in space changed in noticeable ways. And while his microbiome more or less went back to normal when he returned to Earth, that would not happen for people who go to Mars, especially for second, third, and later generations, because we actually get our microbiome after birth from the individual humans around us. Babies get their very first beneficial microbes from their mothers through the natural processes of birth and breastfeeding. And here in cities on Earth, this is particularly true in urban industrialized environments, that process is being interrupted by modern life. Things like antibiotics, cesarean sections, these are actually disrupting the process by which beneficial microbes get passed from one generation to the next. So if that's happening in cities here on Earth, imagine how much that's going to happen for people living on Mars. But we also know that in space, bacteria can evolve quickly, and they can also evolve in ways that make them more dangerous. We've seen this in experiments that have been conducted on the International Space Station. 
So if our microbiome turns on us and goes from beneficial to dangerous, then our microbes might actually play an important role in making Martians distinct from humans. Because we know from human history that any time human populations that have been isolated come together, they tend to, to spread dangerous diseases. Think about what happened to the first Europeans when they traveled to the Americas and spread smallpox and other dangerous diseases and decimated Native American populations. We will certainly want to avoid such mistakes in Martian colonies. So we might decide to enforce separation between people on Earth and people on Mars. But enforced separation would further exaggerate the differences that would already be taking place through mutation and natural selection. So just like those finches in the Galapagos Islands, humans living on Mars would eventually evolve into a new species. Now, clearly there are substantial challenges that will come with creating viable settlements for humans beyond Earth. But ultimately, we may have no choice but to embark on such a mission. As Stephen Hawking once said, our long-term survival depends on us not remaining inward-looking here on Earth, but expanding into space. It's ironic, then, that what we need to do to ensure our long-term survival ultimately will change us forever. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information, be sure to check out websummit.com.